Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. And happy Valentine's Day. Uh, we'll, of course, have to begin with an invocation to Lakshmi, if ever we are to talk about beauty and love and its place in spiritual life. So, of course, let's begin um, this conversation with an invocation of Lakshmi. Om Shri Lakshmi Devye Namaha Om Lakshmiye Devye Namaha Om Shri Lakshmiye Devye Namaha Salutations unto thee, Lakshmi. Thou art pure like the moonbeam. Thou art fragrant as the sandalwood forest. Thou art beautiful as the white lotus of the heart. Salutations to thee, Ma Lakshmi. May you bless us always with abundance, both in the material dimension and the physical, sorry, in the uh, spiritual one. Bless us with beauty, Lakshmi. For art thou not the very source of beauty? For thy very name is beauty. With a mother such as thee, how could I be anything but happy? Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Peace, peace, peace. So I'm always very excited about two times in the year here at Stay Home Yoga. Halloween and Valentine's Day. Thank you so much, Andromeda. Thank you so much. Happy Valentine's Day. And so I'm particularly fond of these two days, Halloween and Valentine's Day, because as you know, two central themes in spiritual life is sex and death. So of course, on Halloween, we have a special lecture about death. And on Valentine's Day, we tend to do a special lecture about sex, <laughs> which is fun, right? The two, two central, uh, let's say, problem areas, and they're related in a very intimate way. Now, uh, we're going to talk about sexuality and spirituality today, but that word sex, I mean it in a Freudian sense and even beyond. So where perhaps Freud was right is that behind everything, there is one force, one non-dual impulse towards activity, uh, though for him, it was just sex. The materialist as he was, he kind of left it at that, you know, <laughs> it was for him just the subconscious mind, nothing but a repository of repressed desires from behind the scenes urging us into this or that action. But the thing is, Freud forgot to ask what was behind that. <laughs> you know, the thing is, when you're reducing down to one thing, you ought to make sure that that one thing is truly fundamental. And so the claim today is that beyond sex, there is something else. Sex is but a misnomer for a much deeper force. And perhaps we can call it love. And I'd like to reclaim that word because, you know, today is Valentine's Day. So it's perhaps one of those words that you've you know, has been thrown at you today ad nauseum and usually in a commercial consumerist context. <laughs> so that word is a little bit of a taboo. It's like the word God, you know, it's a bit of a taboo here in America. <laughs> it's difficult to use that word. So instead, let's call it 
pure motive force. Now let's say this force, this one singular non-dual force, is the dynamo of all of our actions, whether we know it or not. That there is, and here is the claim, only one force in the universe. Only one force acting at any given time. The force that moves the bee to the pollen, the force that moves the Wall Street broker to leave his small town in Idaho and move to um, New York, the force that moves the lover to jump the fence and steal a flower for his beloved from a neighbor's garden, and the force that moves you to come here to spirituality is one and the same force. Different, not in type or kind, but in degree. And if one can understand this one basic principle, we would have come a long way in understanding non-duality. So non-duality, as you know, um, is the philosophy that there is only one thing, one thing without a second. It's the fundamental thing. And as you know, it's the consciousness bliss absolute. And the real kind of clincher or the of this tradition is that's what you are. It turns out that you are the fundamental thing. You are the one non-dual consciousness bliss absolute, one without a second. And from you emerges this universe, in you is sustained this universe, and back into you is reabsorbed this universe in each and every moment of your experiencing. And that's quite a big statement to make. Of course, here you will protest. You'll say, no, 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 I'm so small. What am I? How can I be, you know, the repository of the whole universe? Doesn't that sound a little like solipsism? No, not at all. Uh, because the you that we're talking about here is not Laura, it's not Nish, you know, it's not at all Josh, but it is in a much more fundamental sense. Because beyond this body, beyond this realm of physicality, beyond the mind, the realm of psychology, there is a pure awareness, transpersonal, nothing to do with Nish really. And this whole time I've taken myself to be Nish, you know, as if I was pretending, uh, playing this role, if you will, for so long that I almost forgot that it was a role, that it is uh, just a play, like an actor on a stage, uh, method acting so well that they've identified a little too much <laughs> with the role. Like that, I've taken myself to be niche, when in actuality, I am pure awareness. And that's the you that we talk about in non-duality. Now, those of you who've been studying it a long time, you know that in non-duality, there's only one thing, right? And in order to have a relationship, which is, you know, kind of the, the idea in a conversation about love. Usually we're thinking about, well, it's manifestation in human to human or human to animal or human to plant relationships. But in any of these cases, all of them being relationships, there requires at least two things for one to relate to the other. You know, so the basic building block of a relationship is at least two things. So how then is non-duality compatible with the conversation about love, devotion, romance, uh, any kind of relationship, really. So that's what today we're going to talk about, non-duality and, and love. You know? and, and the claim here is there is one force acting in the universe, acting at different levels, and once we understand what that force is, it will bring to us a sense of clarity and ease and help us um, experience our relationships and our life and each and every moment of this life in a, uh, a more wonderful way. So the first part of this lecture is really going to be about how do we improve our relationships to others? How do we truly love one another? You know, so one, thing, one, one way we could talk about today's talk is how to truly love one another. That's one of the top ideas for titles that I had in mind. Uh, but another one is non-duality and love. 
Because some of you are interested in this theological problem. If indeed only one thing exists, one without a second, and if indeed the calling card of our tradition is Brahman uh, Satyam, Brahma Satyam, Jagat Mithyam, which translates to Brahman alone is real, uh, the world is false, then what is the role of love in this dream world of illusion? You know, is there a place for it? Is there a place for romance and, and, and uh, material relationships in spiritual life? And we'll say empathetically, yes. And we'll explore that a little bit. And finally, the last thing to do in this lecture, God willing, if it happens, um, is to discuss some of the uh, cases of love in Indian spirituality, such as Rama and Sita, you know, in the, Mahab in, in the Ramayana, and of course, Krishna and Radha in the Bhagavata Purana, and what those relationships, those archetypical relationships teach us in terms of divine love, a more elevated love. And finally, I hope to talk a little bit about how you can put into uh, put all these principles into practice in your relationships. Okay, so that's kind of the roadmap for today. We'll start, of course, at the beginning. <laughs> and we'll start with how to understand this one non-dual force that we're calling love. So remember, it's the same force that is acting on different levels. That is what accounts for its seeming plurality. You know, you can say, oh, there's no way the force that moves the rich person to make more money, there's no way that force is the same as the force of a lover skipping class to go and meet her beloved. It can't be the same force that moves us to spiritual life. Surely something must account for the differences in how these forces, you know, how this force uh, appears and how it manifests and how it's experienced. And here we're saying the difference is not in kind or type, but in degree. So let's get right into it then. There are, there are two models I'd like to present here, God willing, in the beginning of our lecture, and we'll use these two models to understand our topic of love. The first model is the three types of joy model that we get from Vedanta. So it's exciting to talk about love, especially in this Hollywood era, uh, with a Vedantic lens. You know, so Vedanta is the world's most ancient spiritual philosophy. It comes from 4000 BCE India. And the very name itself, Veda, Anta, implies something interesting. Veda, you know, from the root vid, meaning knowledge. Veda means knowledge, kind of spiritual knowledge. And Anta means end. So traditionally we say, uh, uh, Vedanta Nama Upanishad uh, uh, praman, uh, Pramanam. So Pramanam means the knowledge. Uh, Veda, uh, Nama, means definition of Vedas, is the wisdom of the Upanishads. You know, so what is the Upanishads? Essentially, at the, when you say Anta, usually you're saying at the end of each Veda, there appears a philosophical text. Not the physical end, because some of these spiritual philosophical texts appear in the middle. So the word Anta is not to be understood as literally the end of the Vedas, but the ultimate conclusions of the Vedas the point of the Vedas, the summary of the Vedas, or the final thought of the Vedas. Another word for it is Siddhanta, established knowledge. You know, so the Vedanta then is the highest spiritual wisdom of the South Asian spiritual tradition. But I heard a philosopher, a very beautiful Indian philosopher, Professor Arindam Chakravarti, give a nice definition. He said, no, Anta means edge. And yes, it's true, end, edge. So when you say Vedanta, Vedanta is actually the cutting edge of knowledge. So it's not to be approached as something ancient or archaic or lost in the mists of the past, but rather a very modern, up-to-date way of conceiving of ourselves and the world around us. So the very cutting edge of knowledge. And it's exciting to take a Vedantic lens and apply it to all these different domains of life because Professor Arindam Chakravarti's point becomes increasingly clear as you see how applicable this ancient wisdom is to every domain of life. 
No. So that's the first project today. And the three models of joy that we get, or rather the model of joy that we get from the Vedanta is as follows. This is predominantly from the Taittiriya Upanishad. In that Upanishad, they carry out a procedure, a very interesting procedure called Ananda Mimamsa. Ananda means joy or bliss. Mimamsa means kind of like analysis or reverential reading. So more accurately, Mimamsa means to read carefully, attentively, and with reverence. So Ananda Mimamsa then is to reverentially um, inquire into the true nature of joy. Isn't that a beautiful project? It's perhaps the most important project to ask the question, what truly makes me happy and why does it make me happy? So in this Ananda Mimamsa, we are being told what it is to be actually fulfilled in the world and why it is that such a fulfillment comes about in that way. So let's dive right in. The three kinds of joys then presented to us by this Ananda Mimamsa activity is as follows. The first is called Vishayananda. The second is called um, Bhajan Ananda. And the third is called Brahmananda. So I'll put it here in the chat. Remember, Ananda means joy, yes? So here we have three kinds of joy. So the first is Vishaya Nanda. Vishaya Nanda. The next is Bhajan Ananda. And then finally, Brahmananda. Or the, the joy of the senses. Vishaya means sense objects. So objective joy or the joy of the senses. Bhajan ananda. Bhajan means like spiritual activity. So bhajan ananda is the joy of spirituality. So that could be prayer, uh, singing devotional songs, contemplation, uh, meditation, selfless service, any activity that you might find in spiritual life. The joy that comes from such an activity is called bhajan ananda. And the ultimate joy, the ultimate consummation of our search for meaning and beauty and truth is Brahman Ananda. So Brahmananda means to become joy. It's the, the final a collapse of the experience-experiencer relationship into one non-dual rapturous experience that transcends all um, description and definition. Remember, words, language is inherently dualistic. So it's a pretty shoddy tool when it comes to explaining a non-dualistic reality, such as Brahmananda. You know, so Brahmananda cannot be described, but suffice to say that it's the ultimate, the absolute. It's the end point of the human adventure in joy. You know, it's the highest joy. So the way to understand this then, let's present kind of a, an illustration. Take a room. It's the room of your life. And in the room, there's all sorts of clutter, all sorts of objects, you know, your various affairs in this life. And in that room, there's placed a mirror. Let's call it the mirror of joy. This is going to be a rather extended metaphor, so bear with me. It's this mirror of joy. And from a window shines the sun. The sun rays pour through the window and alight upon the mirror. When the mirror is murky, muggy, and dim, what light is being reflected can be called Vishayananda. It's sunlight. Make no mistake. It's still sunlight, but it's just a very kind of murky form of it. You know, the problem, the trouble is not in the sunlight, but in the quality of the mirror itself. So all of our sense pleasures, that means the joy that we can get from what we taste, what we smell, what we hear, what we see, and what we touch, these joys are good. They're ananda. They're a kind of genuine spiritual delight. You know, there's the same ananda, except because this ananda is being experienced by a murky mirror, these joys are incredibly fleeting, incredibly transient, 
and not meaningfully fulfilling. But that's not a point that you can ever appreciate until you've had enough of this kind of joy. You know, so my guru once said very nicely, um, you can't ask a hungry man to fast in the name of religion. No, that person is not yet ready for the endeavor of fasting. I mean, this is a metaphor. You know, that person needs to eat. <laughs> so Brahmakrishna used to say beautifully, to teach religion to an empty stomach is an insult. He meant that perhaps in two ways. First, one should see to one's material conditions first. It's very difficult to study deep spiritual philosophy if you don't have your shit together in a material sense. <laughs> so he, of course, was talking about India as a national situation. He's saying, you know, what India needs is not spirituality. India's spirituality is on fleek, as they might say here in California. India doesn't need metaphysics. What India needs is bread. So Swami Vivekananda has come to the West to learn from the West and reintroduce into India what makes the West strong, which is the material power of the West. You know, it's common sense in terms of hygiene and education and I mean, not education, but in terms of uh, infrastructure and, 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 and technology. So the idea was to bring that to the East, to India, you know, ravaged after centuries of colonization and economic ruin so that India can have bread. But in exchange, Vivekananda would bring to America what America needed, what the West needed. The West, suffering from luxury without meaning, needed spirituality, the purpose of life, beyond just gratifying the senses. So it's a wonderful and harmonious trade to achieve the full potential of humanity. Both great cultures, the Occident and the Orient, need to come together and harmonize the two. You know? So in one sense, Ramakrishna was, of course, speaking about the material conditions of India that he wanted to see improved. Um, but in another sense, perhaps he's talking about your personal situation. If you haven't yet lived your life, all this talk about transcending the body and mind will seem rather inane, offensive, and insulting to you. It will seem kind of world negating when right now you're in a stage of your life where what you need is world affirming narratives. You need self-help books, people who are in the world who are teaching you how to make more money if you need to make more money, how to maybe pick up people at the bar if you're struggling in that domain in your life. You know, that, there are classes for that. This is not really that class. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's important to recognize that in the beginning, you need to understand that Vishayananda is good. It ought not be demonized. Sense pleasure, living for the senses, living gregariously in the world and engaging with others in a physical and psychological way, making your way in the world by pursuing that which most sets your soul on fire. All of that has a place, you know. Um, and you should do that because in doing that, you will build the foundations for a spiritual life. Please make no mistake. You cannot even enter the courtyard of spirituality if you don't have a strong and healthy body. See to that first, you know, get, get home base covered. Make sure your health is, is to some degree managed. And that can be done by proper diet, good sleeping habits. You, know, you don't need to come to a spiritual uh, talk for that. There are books and teachers that can do that. So, so handle that first. And that's why Vivekananda Swamiji so beautifully said, young boys in India would do better playing football than reading the Bhagavad Gita when it comes to getting closer to God. <laughs> he didn't want whips, you know, he's saying when it comes to spirituality, and this is for men and women and, and, and any, every, everybody in between as well, uh, any kind of gender orientation, he's saying what you need is muscles of steel and nerves of, elect, uh, nerves of lightning. And he says that because the, the shock of spirituality can be a lot for the nerves, for the body. So you need to have some strong constitution when it comes to how electricity flows through your body and how your body is built, you know? So that's the first thing. See to that. So 
our, our idea then is in Vishayananda, when you're pursuing sense pleasure, you'll need to build up a strong body to go and truly enjoy, enjoy that, you know? And not only that, when you're building your wealth, when you're figuring things out in your relationships, you're going to have to build character, tremendous moral resilience. You know, so pursuing your dreams, if you want to be a rock and roll guitar player, or if you want to be an accountant or lawyer fighting for behalf of animal rights, you must do that first, you know, and then from doing that, you will develop the character and the wherewithal for true spiritual life. Don't put the cart before the horse. You know, this is your final course in the university before you graduate. Please don't come to calculus if you haven't mastered algebra, you know, we're not cursing algebra. We're not saying it's bad. You need to kind of get a passing grade in that first. <laughs> so the first thing to say here then is Vishayananda is still an Ananda. And if you crave it, you should go and enjoy it. In fact, uh, last week we were celebrating Swami Brahmananda and it was Brahmananda Puja. So it was his birthday and we were kind of celebrating this great spiritual master, one of Ramakrishna Paramahansa's direct disciples. And one thing I forgot to tell you last week is actually this detail. Brahmananda, as we said last week, was married. You know, so before he became a monk, he was actually married at a young age. He was married and he was kind of caught between two worlds. Should he live a life of renunciation, become a monk, or should he live a householder's life? You know, get married, raise kids. You know, what, what should he do? He was kind of torn between the two. And Ramakrishna, his guru, actually, and his spiritual, kind, he's, he's a spiritual son of Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna actually sent him back to live with his wife because he knew there was still some lingering desire there. Isn't that interesting? And all the other direct disciples were worried. They were like, oh, what if our brother, young Rakal, you know, before he was Brahmananda, he was Rakal. What if young Rakal becomes worldly? What if he becomes drawn into Maya or samsara, you know, this wheel of birth and death? What if he gets caught by the net of Mahamai, the great illusion? And Ramakrishna said, please don't worry about any kind of thing like that. He has tasted spiritual joy, Bhajan Ananda. And he knows how much sweeter that joy is. The world will never catch him again. I paraphrase, of course. And so indeed, he went back and he experienced that. And him and his wife parted on very wonderful terms. You know, and he went and lived a life of renunciation. But not before he had fully kind of experienced that Vishayananda. And through his own discerning process, came to reason out that Bhajanananda was most fulfilling, most worth living for. And that's what allowed him to kind of move past Vishayananda. So what is Vishayananda? As we said last week it, and the week before, it's any kind of pleasure that is arising, that arises from the contact of sense objects with their sense organs. You know, so that intersection of eyes and beautiful thing gives you the Vishayananda of physical beauty through the eyes or the skin and some pleasurable thing to touch, you know, sparsha, touch. That contact will cause some kind of joy to arise. Wonderful joy, isn't it? You can really lose yourself in the joy of eating a strawberry or savoring some chocolate or, you know, like Salvador Dali twiddling his mustache and sipping some fine red wine and saying something pretentious like, ah, see, Westerfer is making the Salvador Dali face now. Ah, one does not taste wine. One savors of its secrets, you know. And then, of course, you can add here some kind of cultured and, and uh, fluent kind of French adage, you know? je peux résister tous les choses comme une exception, les tentations. I can resist all things with one exception, temptation, Oscar Wilde, you know. So yes, there's, there's, a room, there's room for all of that, that art experience, the experience of the esthete, 
the sensualist, um, like Salvador Dali, you know, and you taste, you taste, it's wonderful, it's wonderful. Yes, <laughs> red is actually, you know, a French speaking person. So red is here to make sure. <laughs> but you see, this is Vishayananda and it's worth enjoying. And eventually everyone will realize that it's a limited kind of enjoyment. That's the problem with Vishayananda. As we stress again and again, the joy that one gets from the sense pleasures is incredibly fleeting, incredibly momentary, and not lastingly fulfilling. Once that feeling that I'm not fulfilled despite all these pleasures, once that feeling called divine dispassion from the Buddhist or something like Weltschmerz from the Germans, once you get that feeling of world weariness, Weltschmerz, wonderful word, right? Weltschmerz in the German language. Once you get that feeling, oh, hello, Abby. Once you get this feeling of world weariness, that's when spirituality begins. So why is the ananda, the bliss of pure sunlight, pure spiritual joy, how does it get stepped down into Vishayananda? And as we said, it's the quality of the mirror, not the quality of the sunlight. The mirror is full of all sorts of murkiness. It's a kind of smudged mirror. So to explain this, let's kind of go to a different model now. This model is from Sankhya, one of the world's oldest philosophies, actually, systems of philosophy. So in Sankhya, we get this idea that there are three primordial forces in nature. I know earlier I said there's only one force. No, that's that's a different philosophy. Here we're looking at Sankhya. There are three, maybe you could say, uh, qualities of this one force three differentiated aspects of one force. Let's maybe say that. Now, they are as follows Sattva which means the pure, lucid, clear joy of spirituality. There is rajas, the kind of dynamic, uh, motivating force of ambition and uh, desire and perhaps even lust and greed are kind of rajasic forces, rajas. And finally, tamas. Tamas is the force of inertia in the universe. Yeah, one large Welch merits, please. Mads goes to the bar and says, what would you like to have today? You know, we have all these cocktails. And Matt says, one tall order of Welch merits, please. <laughs> and he throws it back. Uh, she throws it back with joy. Okay, so um, you see this rajas, this sattva, and finally tamas, meaning inertia or heaviness, are the three basic building blocks of nature. So just take our word for it now. You know, let's not go into this too much. Um, there are other things that I'd like to qualify and prove in today's lecture beyond just this model, but let's just go with it for a moment. Let's, let's assume this model. Now, in this model, everything that you see is some combination of these three properties. So when you see a table, as we described a few lectures ago, it's got a preponderance of tamas. It's like heavy, it's inert, and it's not going anywhere. Hopefully not. That would be a, a real problem for you and your hot tea if your table had any more rajas than it does. You know, It's good that the table has tamas. You want the table to be a tamasic thing. Rocks are tamasic. You know, They just kind of sit there. And some people are tamasic, right? Some people have a huge preponderance of tamas. All they do is get stoned and sit on the couch. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, mind you. It's just a certain energetic predisposition. Now, there are things in the world that are very rajasic, like fire electricity, lightning, very rajasic, you know, and there are people like that too. You call them, uh, what do you call it? Ambitious people, There's a high achievers, right? High achievers, always busy going from ballet class to chess club, to um, marathon swimming, to tuition, to, to tutoring, you know, for the SATs. I teach middle school here in LA. So in the private schools, everyone is very kind of rajasic. Um, but it's like, I got so many things to do today. I got a to-do list. I got to build my business. I've got all these, I've got a world to build. You know, I've got an empire to create. That's Rajas. It's in things, it's in food, it's in people. And finally, 
there's that quality of sattva. Sattva is the joy of learning, the joy of sitting peacefully, the joy of um, contemplating deep spiritual issues, the joy of hearing a spiritual talk, the joy of reading a spiritual book, the joy of praying, you know, that's sattva. And these are the three forces in the universe. So what has a lot of sattva? Well, probably light, you know, some elements in nature have a lot of sattva, uh, pictures of the divine, divine books, divine personages. So like paintings and pictures of gods and goddesses and all of that, that's very sattvic, you know? So that's one model for you. The, ele- the, the three primordial elemental features of this nature, rajas being dynamic activity, tamas being stable inert force and sattva being lucidity and clarity. So let's take that model now and superimpose it onto this Ananda Mimamsa project, this analysis of joy. So what causes the mirror to be smudged? Rajas and tamas. When one has a lot of tamas in them, the mirror becomes so smudged that even Vishayananda cannot reflect off of it. This we call a state of depression. When even the sense pleasures don't motivate you, it's because tamas has become so predominant that the mirror has become completely dark. And as we stressed a few lectures ago, and as we continue to stress, for such a person, rajas is good moving in the direction of your dreams and even lust and greed can be good motivating forces because it gets you out of that tamasic state. So as we said um, two weeks ago, some people struggle to even get out of bed and into the shower. Some people don't leave their house. So the moving kind of motivation of lust can be good. You know, it gets gets you out of bed, gets you showered, gets you to put the cologne on or whatever, put on a nice outfit, you know, and then go out to the club and meet somebody because there's a joy to that. There's an excitement. There's a thrill. And that has its place. So what's going on here is you're scrubbing that tamas, that muggy mirror, with the dirty dishcloth of rajas. You're not going to get a spotless mirror, but you're going to get a little more light at least, you know? So that sunlight will reflect off the mirror a little bit more. So now you get to enjoy Vishayananda. So what causes ananda, that pure, clear light of spirituality to become Vishayananda? It's a stepping down process Uh, by virtue of rajas and tamas being the predominant forces in the body. How do we get more sattva? The answer is simple. By increasing your spiritual practice, naturally you become more sattvic, less rajasic and less tamasic. That's all there is to it. The more you contemplate spirituality, the more you meditate, and you know meditation is kind of my favorite, but there's so many others. The more you pray, the more you do selfless acts of service, the more and more that Uh, Yes, as Mark is saying, the more and more Lysol gets applied to the, this lecture brought to you by, (laughs) this lecture sponsored by Lysol, the ultimate cleaner for your mirror. (laughs) The new line of Lysol, Sattva. (laughs) But anyway, you know, the more and more you practice spirituality, the more and more, yeah, I, I left the Ayurvedic copper water bottle over there, so that's not going to be featured today. Yes. (laughs) So yes, spiritual practice, the more you meditate, you know, you set times every day and you meditate thrice a day for an hour each time. Within a short period of time, you'll see that your tastes are changing. You've gone from living and dying for the basest, most obvious sense pleasures like tastes and sounds. You've gone from that to maybe more rarefied forms of Vishayananda, like intellectual joy. Maybe now you enjoy debating Marx with someone or reading Friedman economics or talking about Freud. Everyone enjoys intellectual joys um, once once they've got a taste for it, but not before. Haven't you noticed that? Some people just cannot sit through um, a, a certain book, but you like it. 
So something that's torture for someone else to you is delight. You know, some book on economics or psychology or some German philosopher like Kant, you know, you're sitting there reading critique of pure reason at the club. (laughs) (laughs) So eventually you get this taste for intellectual stuff, for philosophy. In fact, the more subtle and more intricate the philosophy, the better the joy, you know, there's an intellectual joy and it's wonderful. That intellectual joy to some degree trumps other kinds of joy. So Vivekananda in his book, Bhakti Yoga offers this uh, metaphor, a person who loves sense pleasures, the moment they get a taste for art and intellectual pursuits, the tastes for sense pleasure kind of falls away. You know, so imagine someone who enjoys high art and is sitting in a gallery looking at a Mondrian or um, a Picasso or something, you know, and suddenly you come up to them and you say, do you want to go watch that new Spider-Man movie in the, in the theater next door? They'll look at you with some disgust. They'll say, no, leave me alone. I'm enjoying my work of art. You know, Swami Sarvapriyananda and his lecture on Bhakti Yoga gave that example. So once you get a taste for intellectual joys, for artistic joys, the more refined and rarefied pleasures of this world, the grosser, more obvious pleasures fall away. So you find yourself less attracted to the in and out meal and a little more attracted to the conversation that happens while you're at in and out with your intellectual friends. Do you notice that? There's a subtle change in your taste and it's very natural. It comes very naturally. As you progress in your spiritual life, meaning as you read more, as you purify the intellect, as you refine your aesthetic sensibility, naturally, without any effort on your part, the grosser sense pleasures fall away, giving way to the finer, more refined sense experiences, such as uh, beauty and music and all of that. Right? This is, this is, we've all had this experience. Okay. Now, In the beginning, you're not going to be too stable. You know intellectual joys are better, but because of the force of old habits and old patterns, you'll continue to seek out like lower forms of joy. And then after you, you know, you wake up, you've got a hangover the next day and you're like, man, I really, I would have preferred to stay home with a cup of tea reading Kant. I don't know why I let my friends take me out to the club again. It was all right. I mean, it was fun. Not as fun as it used to be. And certainly not as fun anymore because Kant ruined all of that for me. Now I just want to sit home and read critique of pure reason. (laughs) Now I don't want to hang out um, with those people. I want to hang out with these people because they intellectually stimulate me. You see, that happens to all of us. And eventually the more and more joy we get from intellectual things, artistic things, the more sure we are that those are better joys, more fulfilling joys, more lucid and clear joys, the less interest we're going to have in those lower forms of joy. So here it's a natural progression of the intellect and the soul. So Ruma Isa is asking, why do we sometimes find intellectual joy murkier than, and, and, uh, than that older, more obvious, the other more obvious joy? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So here it's because of Rajas and Tamas, you see. Those two are kind of like a cat and, and, and mouse. They're always chasing each other. And the mouse turns into a dog and the dog chases the cat. They're always kind of going around. Notice this, a very Rajasic joy is like lust. So let's say you want to go to the club, right? That's the feeling. Okay, I want to go to the club. So you go out. It's Rajas that takes you out to the club. Now you're partying. There's like the rajas, the the energy of the rave, you know, maybe you're on some molly. So there's that powerful rajasic feeling. And um, there's all the sexual stimulation. I mean, look what he's wearing. Look what she's wearing. Look what they're wearing. Uh, Oh, they looked at me that way. And it's also exciting and titillating, right? Um, And then what happens the next day? You wake up in your bed, totally hungover, tremendous headache. You can't even step out. Uh, of the house because the sun's too bright. You can't get out of the bed that day. That whole day passes in tamasic stupor. Don't 
Do you notice that? And then at the end of a day that you spent in your house in your pajamas in that hangover period, you get restless and want to go out again. <laughs> so you see how Rajas and Tamas are always kind of feeding one another. In fact, they're like yin and yang, the yin and yang of a material existence. And most of us, you know, our whole life is like this, bouncing from one extreme to the other, rajas and tamas, <laughs> excitement and recovering from that excitement. And then back to more excitement. It's just restlessness and restlessness, right? So the intellectual joys aren't very stable. The uh, uh, artistic joys aren't very stable. That's why the world is full of unhappy intellects and miserable artists. You know, the aesthetic rapture of beauty and that thrilling, clear, lucid joy of thinking is really not that good, you know, in the broad scheme of things, because it doesn't do it for you. If it did, you wouldn't have so many like suicides and drug addictions in every faculty of every university around the world. There wouldn't be so many miserable musicians and painters. So obviously, people who are living for intellectual joys and for artistic joys are generally going to find a little more fulfillment in life than people who live solely for uh, baser sense pleasures, sense gratification. But even then, it's not ultimately fulfilling. So all of this we can call Vishayananda, and all of this is the murky mirror made murky by a preponderance of rajas and tamas, which, as Ruma Issa beautifully pointed out for us, can alternate. You can circle back. You can be lost in this murky mirror realm for quite some time. Okay, now spirituality enters your life, right? At this point, the, you know, interestingly enough, when you start studying German philosophy, truly you really get into Schopenhauer and you truly get into Kant and Hegel, you'll eventually end up in Indian philosophy. Don't worry. German philosophy will take you here. <laughs> the absolute uh, full stop of Camus and Sartre will leave you wanting more and then you'll find the Buddha. You know, because Camus stops at the world sucks. The Buddha says, don't worry, I found a way out. Come this way. And you're like, oh, thank God. I don't have to spend my whole life smoking cigarettes at left bank complaining about the political situation. I can go do what the Buddha is doing and actually be happy in my life. <laughs> so don't worry, don't worry. Intellectual delight will bring you to spirituality. And we're in no rush. We're here waiting for you. You know, take your time. Read as much philosophy as possible because you're preparing your mind. You know, we don't want any weak and muggy intellects here. We want sharp minds sharp minds, and deep aesthetic sensibilities. You have to be very cultured for spiritual life. You see how this is not a beginner's class? <laughs> this assumes that you have already set up the foundation for the higher faculties of the body, mind, and soul. You know, And that requires that you taste Vishayananda a little bit, see what the world is about, decide whether or not it's for you. It's not for you. It's never for anybody, but you must come to that conclusion for yourself. Then you go from that to intellectual joys and artistic joys, and that will fulfill you for a time. And then eventually those will bring you into spiritual life. And many of you will testify. Okay. Now what is spiritual life? Once you get into spiritual life through one door or another, whether it was Buddhism, whether it was non-duality, Advaita Vedanta, whether it was Christian mysticism or Sufism or what have you, when you come to spiritual life and you start spiritual practice, meaning you go from the lecture to your meditation mat and actually do something, you know, actually meditate, do your japa, do your recitations of your zikr or whatever it is your tradition is. Um, once you start doing those things, you'll find in those activities a very rarefied, sublime type of joy. And the interesting thing thing is, this joy stays with you and fulfills you in a way that those other joys couldn't quite do it. You know, like this kind of joy, you know, the joy of a good meditation in the morning, a deep absorbed prayer in the morning will last through the whole day. It's a kind of wholesome feeling, a sense of integrity and authenticity. And it always leaves you feeling better off at the end of that joy, 
than you were feeling at the beginning. So yes, you know, like when you eat a whole bunch of cheese, like say you have a huge cheese pizza, right? It's a margin of diminishing returns. By the time you get to the end of consummating your pizza bliss, you're in a worse place than you were in the beginning of the pizza adventure. You feel kind of heavy and tired and you're like, oh, why did I do that? And tomorrow you'll do it again, of course. But now, you know, notice um, at the end of the pizza adventure, it leaves you feeling drained. You get back from the club, sometimes you feel drained. Yeah, you know, when we have Vishayananda, it costs us something energetically. Yes, it was good, but it left us feeling kind of strung out or, you know, empty at the end. And that feeling of emptiness is very sacred. It's Welsh merits, world weariness, divine dispassion, beautiful. Bless that feeling, you know, because it's that feeling that brings you into genuine spirituality. You know, it... We get so many people, as one Swami said beautifully, at the Vedanta Ashram, who are merely spiritual tourists. You know, they're just there out of some intellectual curiosity and maybe some desire to be like, I don't know, like some hippie desire to appear cultured or something. And they know, you don't, you see them once and then they're gone, you know, because they, they're still interested in the world. And that's good. They should go out and enjoy the world. Then... There are people at the ashram who are sincere seekers. You just know it. You know these people have been let down time and time again. And you know these people have the discernment and the wherewithal to identify that nothing in the world can ever truly satisfy them. That's why they've come to spiritual life. Once you taste the joy of spirituality, and like we said, this joy is called bhajan ananda, quite literally the joy of devotional music, actually, singing spiritual songs. But it's, uh, it's, it's uh, what do you call it? Uh, all-inclusive phrase for every kind of spiritual activity and the joy that arises from them. And Laura is testifying here. There's no going back. Exactly. Like in the case of Brahmananda and Ramakrishna, he wasn't worried about Rakal going back into the world because he knew that Rakal had tasted spiritual joy. And once you taste that joy, it's so sweet and so fulfilling. And unlike the other joys, it doesn't leave you worse off at the end of it. It makes you feel better, more full, more uh, fuller, uh, more authentic, more, more integrity. You know, So that joy will eventually edge out the Vishayananda. So now your mirror is relatively spotless. You know, it's, it's a wonderfully clean mirror. Why? Because you used your Lysol Sattva rub and got rid of all your rajas and tamas, dust and, and smudges and all of that. So let me just say it this way. The more you purify the body and the mind through spiritual practice, the more sensitive you will be to true beauty and true joy, which all the time is blowing like the wind. It's just that our sails have not been hitched appropriately to catch that wind, to use a metaphor from Ramakrishna. So grace, the winds of grace are always blowing. You know, right now, everything is joy. You are like a fish swimming in an ocean of joy, complaining of thirst. Why is this happening? Because you have not tuned yourself, your body and your mind to experience that joy. Imagine you were like an instrument and God is trying to play you, but you're out of tune. The music that comes out is going to be a little disjointed and not at all pleasurable to you or to her. So when God wants to play the vena that is your body and mind, make sure you are a tuned instrument. Then everyone can enjoy the music. God, you and everyone around you. <laughs> So what is spiritual practice? It's polishing the mirror. It's tuning the guitar. It's uh, preparing the body and mind uh, by making it sensitive to real beauty, the source of beauty, not the shadows of beauty that you sometimes see in art or philosophical treatises, not the degenerate echoes of beauty that you sometimes feel in the chocolate bar or the orgasm, but real beauty, the source of beauty. And what is the source of beauty? It's awareness. So here's the assertion. And you must test this in your own life. When you look at a flower, is it the flower that's beautiful? Or is it not the fact that you are aware of the flower that is enlivening? 
You know, the fact that you're there present with the flower, what's beautiful is perhaps not the flower. It's the awareness in which that wonderful pink daffodil, is there such a thing, sits, you know. That's the joy of it. And that's exactly, Tana, I hope I'm saying it right, Tana. Uh, this joy is called Bhajan Ananda, spiritual joy. And as we said, you start your life being interested in Vishayananda, material joys, sense pleasures. And from there, you go towards intellectual and artistic joys. And from there, you go towards spiritual joys, Bhajan Ananda. So you could say the arts and sciences are like a bridge leading you from like a base animal existence of the senses towards a more elevated existence of the spirit, of the soul. And there will come a time when your whole day will be oriented around meditation, prayer, studying spiritual texts, and having spiritual conversations. There will come a time when your entire friend group will reflect your ideals, where the people that you hang out with will be people that are like you, interested in Bhajanananda, who have no taste for Vishayananda, who instead of going to the club will prefer to go to the Kirtan Center, who instead of getting high and sitting on the couch watching the Super Bowl, no offense, will prefer to sit and meditate and discuss Shankaracharya's um, Aparokshanabhuti or something, you know. <laughs> these will be your friends, all the people that you see around you here in this room. You know, you'll connect with these people via the Discord, via these Zoom meetings. Somehow or other, teachers and friends will just be drawn into your life because you yourself are now resonating at that new frequency of Bhajanananda. So, I'll have to give you a metaphor here or, or an experience. You know when you like love to do drugs? Some of you might have that experience. And let's say it's a particular kind of drug. Let's say, okay, you like Molly. Do you notice that you just meet people who also like Molly? Just coincidentally, you'll go to the grocery store and you'll be buying bread and you'll feel like chatting up the cute stranger next to you. And somehow or other, she's also a rave girl into the um, LA underground EDM scene. And now both of you are doing Molly together at, you know... Um, Coachella or, or lightning in a bottle or something. Isn't that funny? You just, when you do, when you do a drug, attract into your life, other people who are also doing that drug. And it's totally serendipitous. If you're into cocaine or whatever, suddenly the cocaine fiends will find you. It's almost like you're putting off a scent, <laughs> right? And addicts, no addicts or something like that. So if you're into heroin, if you're into cocaine, if you're into Molly, eventually your circle will reflect that. The friends that you have will be people who also share your interests. Now, if you're into money, if all you want is to make money and read like how to make money books and move to Wall Street and live for ambition, then that kind of people will find you. You know, that, that will be your circle of friends. So in our lecture today about love and relationships, this is a very important point, actually, in our lecture, because this is kind of explaining why you're having the relationships that you're having, not just in a romantic sense, but also in like a friendship sense. You know, it's not them. It's you. <laughs> you know, say, babe, babe, it's not you. It's me. No, 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 it's you. It's you because you are putting that out. That's the scent that you are emitting. Of course, you're going to attract a certain kind of dog. <laughs> no, I'm just playing with you. But uh, you see, it's a vibrational thing. And I think this is a kind of idea that the new age has really eaten up and much to its credit. This idea that if you live for um, sense pleasures, you will attract the kind of person who also lives for sense pleasure. And both of you will reify and reaffirm that orientation to life. There can be a kind of gravitational pull there that inhibits you from moving further in your evolution. So such a friend group, such a relationship might actually hold you back because they'll start to question why it is you're going to the club less. 
you know, why it is you're spending more time reading books and meditating things that to them are kind of meaningless and pointless and boring. They don't want to meditate with you. They want to watch the Super Bowl. So there's going to be a tension in your relationship. Why? Because you are now moving towards Bhajanananda, spiritual joys, and they're not yet ready to give up Vishayananda. It's nobody's fault. You're not better than them. You're both just on different parts of your journey. And as you can see in the chat here, you know, Tana is saying, uh, uh, you, you lose your friends, right? When you start changing your life, you know, because they're your friends based on a lifestyle choice, interestingly enough. And when that falls away, so too do they. But new friends come. You know, that's the beauty of this Sangha. So those of us who are feeling like we're in a transition period in our life, where we're leaving behind worldliness and becoming interested in spiritual life, here's your community. Look around the room because almost everyone you see here has been through it. They've tasted samsara in all of its dimensions. They've drank to the dregs the wine of life. And now we're all sitting in a circle in the neighborhood of ruin, as Rumi would say beautifully. Come, sit outside the wheel of time with those who would drink ruin to the dregs. <laughs> Something like that, I'm paraphrasing. So um, now you're interested in Bhajanananda, your Vishayananda friends and relationships will fall away. And slowly, your new relationships will reflect your new ideals. So what do you do if you want to improve your relationships? Simple. Don't take up the issue with your partner, with your friends. Take it up with your own self, with your own activities, how you are spending your time. Start to prioritize your meditations, your prayer, your study of spiritual text. Start to prioritize spiritual activities a little bit at first. At first, don't, don't like suddenly drastically change your life. That can also have, you know, some whiplash. Go slowly. If you're meditating five minutes a day, move it to 10. You know, at least put a little bit of time aside for spirituality. The rest of the day you eat, drink and be merry. Party. You know, go on with your ways. But every day, just try to you know, kind of sneak a little bit of spirituality in there. And eventually, you know, the joy of spirituality will edge out all the other joys by virtue of just being more fulfilling and more um, authentic. Now, when this starts to happen to you, don't be surprised if friends and relationships fall away. That's only natural. And it's part of your evolution as a soul. Now, fortunately, in some cases, your friends and your relationships will go with you. You know, they see the example that you're setting and you don't have to preach to them. This is the most important thing. You don't have to go to them and say, hey, don't you understand the movie you're watching? It's nothing but special effects. Can you imagine how annoying it is if you went to the theater and just went and whispered into everyone's ear? The movie is fake. It's special effects. No, leave them alone. They're trying to enjoy the movie for them. They don't care that it's special effects. They're very much involved in the drama of their life. If someone's telling you about their boy and girl and person troubles and you're like, bro, it's not that big of a deal. That's like telling them it's special effects when they're trying to enjoy a movie. Leave them to it, you know? Don't preach. Don't say anything. Show, you know, and you show them your joy. So as you practice more spirituality, I guarantee you, you know, all the money that you didn't pay for this lecture, all your money back, if this doesn't come out, turn out to be true. But if you practice more spirituality, you will feel better in your life. You will feel joy. Your body will feel so exuberant. You won't even feel your body. You know, if you do yogasana, you do the postures of yoga or take up a qigong practice or some kind of embodied form of spiritual practice, you try it, you see what happens. Just give me one month, you know, just like put it into practice for 21 days. And at the end of the month, as Brahmananda used to say, if in three or four years, you haven't realized something, come back and slap me. I feel very inspired by that statement. If by the end of 21 days of a regular consistent yogasana practice, you don't feel lighter and more exuberant in your body, if there isn't some form of physical joy in your life, come, sue me, slap me, you know, because this is a, it's a spiritual law. 
It's a law that if you practice spirituality, you wipe that damn mirror, more light will shine. Your room will be more and more radiant, you know? Hopefully, Westerfer will read us that roomy poem with the motes of dust. So have that on hand, Westerfer. I'm hoping we can close with it. Um, yeah, exactly. So that's the thing. If you start practicing spirituality, even physical forms like postural yoga, and if you start, you know, reading spiritual texts and living your life according to spiritual ideals, if you start meditating, naturally, without saying anything to anybody, you will start to exude a kind of joy, a kind of fragrance. And maybe your friends and relationships will be so inspired by that joy, they're going to ask, um, what are you smoking? And can I have some? And you're going to say back to them, meditation, bro something like that, you know, and then they might come and join you. So in that sense, you becoming spiritual, you starting to cultivate a taste for bhajan ananda is the best thing you can do for your relationships and your friendships, because you are now modeling for them a new way of living in the world, a more fulfilling and elevated way of being um, a person in this world. And they might be excited about that. Yes. Like Pauline's example, which I'm hoping that, you know, Pauline will tell us about um, at the end of the lecture. Yes. So as Rory is saying here, and this is not so smooth and not so easy for many of us, you know, for some of us, for many of us, I would say, uh, the, the situation we find ourselves in is a little more resistant to change than how we've just portrayed. You know, you might have a partner who has certain ideas about meditation. Well, that's of the devil. Or, um, you know, some people have a problem with joy. Have you noticed that? Some people feel like if they start to become happier, they will lose the sense of personality they get from being sad. Have you noticed some people are very attached to their suffering? So if you start to model for them a way of being in the world that's happy and fulfilled and meaningful, they might react to that in a negative way. They might be very threatened by you. They might think you're a fake or a phony or a sham because in their worldview, nobody can be happy, you know? In my testimony, in my anecdotal kind of experience, I used to have periods of my life where I was feeling like crummy or kind of like low energy or like down or sad about something. I used to make up a lot of stories about myself and about others, about why they were doing the things that they were doing. I used to make up stories about what I was supposed to do in this life, what I have to achieve. And I could have maybe gone to therapy for it and had long conversations with someone about what my mother did that caused me to feel this. I'm not talking down to therapy. I'm just saying that instead, in my own personal experience, I did spiritual practice intensely. And I can say now quite happily that my default state is one of joy and physical exuberance. You know, uh, by the grace of the mother, by divine grace, this body feels light and exuberant and wonderful, you know, and the heart feels happy and open. And there's a sense of current of joy that underlies all of my experiences, even experiences of maybe grief, like very natural grief that arises from losing friends, um, from losing loved ones. That grief becomes an experience of beauty and delight. It's been a long time since I've felt crummy or low energy or depressed. That word has no meaning for me anymore. You know, that's just anecdotal experience. But I hang out almost all day with monks, with um, nuns with novice nuns and novice monks. And if only you knew the mansion of mirth and delight that these communities are, you know, you'll know that it's not anecdotal and exclusive to niche. It's a joy that all of us can have if we would but practice, but do a little bit of spirituality. All right. So this bhajanananda, it will make you happy, you know, and because it's a little bit more fulfilling a type of joy. Selfless service is so nice. Worship devotion is so nice. Um, and, you know, all of these activities, whether it's prayer, meditation, selfless service, contemplation, all of these spiritual activities, the reason they're so nice is because they're moving you away from all of your stories about yourself and about the world. 
You know, they're moving you from the mind into the heart. In other words, they're slowly and gradually effacing your me, me, me sense of being in this world. You know, you right now might feel like you are the star of your own movie, that you are the center of your own life and that this whole universe revolves around you and that you should understand everything only in relation to how it pertains to you. And other people, of course, are only motivated in ways that are pertaining to you. <laughs> you know, so, so much of our life in this rajasic and tamasic worldly mirage of a world is me, 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 me. As some sadhus say, it's a minefield. If you call everything mine, you'll be living in a minefield. <laughs> you know? So notice these bhajan anandas, the reason they are so refined and beautiful is because they slowly decenter you in your own experience. The you here now I'm talking about is the you of the ego. And, and really what I'm saying is your story about you who you think you are and what you think you should do in this world. Your story about what you think this world is or what success means or what you need to do to get love. All of these are just stories and they're going to tyrannize you for all of your life if you don't find some way to decenter them, to destabilize them. If you don't take your stand in something outside of the mind, in something outside of these stories, then you will always live within the prison house that they present. Prison house of words. Nothing but words. Smoke and mirrors, you know? So scrub the mirror. Scrub the mirror with spiritual practice. And you will see these stories that used to be so real to you, they might not go away, mind you. That's also been my experience. The story comes, but I no longer believe in it as much as I used to, at least. Yes, there are some stories that I must still dissolve. Stories that are perhaps so subtle that I'm not yet cognitively aware of them that will perhaps come out as I continue my sadhana. And how nice, right? There's still more, so much more to do. I'm only a beginner. I'm a, very, I'm a baby in spiritual life. And that delights me. You know, because if this much joy has come out of this little bit of work, can you imagine how much more joy is waiting just up ahead? So I moved by joy and I find that this is a path that seems to uh, deliver, you know. So anyway, the stories might come up, but they're not as believable as they used to be, because now you're taking your stand in something more than just the mind, something outside of the mind, something more authentic and real, the spirit, the soul, pure awareness, call it what you will. We don't need a name for it. You know it when you feel it. That's Bhajanananda. Okay. How does all of this apply to relationships? Well, before we start talking about Brahmananda, the ultimate bliss, you know, let's first kind of apply these two models, Tamas, Rajas, and Sattva from Sankhya and Bhajanananda and Vishayananda from Vedanta. Let's apply these two models now to our conversation about relationships. There are three kinds of relationships that you can have. Tamasic ones, Rajasic ones, or sattvic ones. Or another way of saying this is, you can have Vishayananda-oriented relationships, you can have Bhajanananda-oriented relationships, or you can have Brahmananda-oriented relationships. And of course, the way we've set it up is undoubtedly as an ascending hierarchy of joy. <laughs> the worst kind of relationship you can have with others is a relationship based off of sense pleasure, right? And all of us have experienced rolling off to one side and staring at the ceiling in bed um, having just experienced an orgasm and thinking, wow, there must be more to life than this, right? We've all objectified someone. In, in our time of being here, I'm sure all of us have used someone else as a kind of auto-erotic device. It was auto-eroticism the whole time. It was glorified masturbation. You just had an accomplice. <laughs> and somehow or other, we managed to trick them into it. You know, bought them a drink or two, said something nice about their uh, take on Kant, and then we finagle them into bed and we totally use them for Vishayananda, sense pleasure. <laughs> um, but you see, that relationship 
was premised on Vishayananda. And it most of the time is a kind of manipulation because you're both fooling each other. Um, uh, you're fooling yourself and the other person and they're fooling themselves and you. So you're both kind of mutually complicit in this deception called sense pleasures will fulfill you, live and die for them. That's the name of the deception. Sense pleasures will fulfill you. Spend all your money acquiring them. Live and die for sense pleasures. This is the game. And both of you are mutual collaborators in reifying that. You know, so you're at the club, they're at the club, and now you come home and you're reinforcing this muggy, murky mirror together. This is a Vishayananda relationship and it's a tamasic relationship and a rajasic relationship. So my guru actually said just today, you see all these people entering into relationships, you have to ask, why are they getting married for massacre? <laughs> just a funny way, way he said it, you know, he's like, look, they're all fighting. Did they get married to fight? Did they get married to be angry at one another? If you look at any relationship, and by the way, I, I teach yoga in, in Brentwood. Okay. <laughs> no, that I have one model relationship and she's here actually. There is one household in Brentwood that is a household of truth <laughs> and I love. Um, but, um, you know, in my four, four or five years teaching here in LA, I've noticed there are a lot of families that have everything, tremendous amounts of wealth, but the, the husband and wife are fighting all the time. The kids are fighting with the parents. You know, I even watched a kid once kick her mother in the head several times. I'm in the passenger seat and the kid is going like that. Um, and, I, and, and I'm just like sitting there and like, uh, we're on the highway, you know, and I'm saying, can you let me out now? I think this is a you problem. I'm just going to hitchhike there. I'm Ubering, right? <laughs> but we're on the highway. I couldn't get out. <laughs> but yeah, no, I've seen all of that here in LA. Such like rajasic, tamasic, like cycles of anger and remorse. And that's because a lot of those relationships are Vishayananda relationships. Those two people came together to enjoy sense pleasure together um, with one another. And now they are sharing the world of sense pleasures together. That's why, you know, they have to go on the yacht and go on this pleasure cruise and that pleasure cruise. And, you know, they're, they're both, mutually aligned to um, Vishayananda. And that's going to be the least fulfilling relationship. Why? Because it's the least fulfilling personal orientation to life. So naturally then, an unfulfilling personal orientation to life when shared will just be an unfulfilling interpersonal orientation to life, no? <laughs> You'll both be unhappy together. Um, so Vishayananda relationships are worth having just so you can understand that they're not worth having. You need to go through that. You need to go through the club sorority fraternity objectification phase at some point, you know, and then you crave something more, something real. And you know, it's funny. Most Vishayananda relationships are operating under the pretense of that real thing. Babe, I love your personality, boobs, but I love your personality. You know, um, boy, you just have such, such a deep affinity for Kant, you know, it's so stimulating abs. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just teasing. So not to be so terranormative with you, but you know how it feels, right? Like any kind of romantic relationship in any kind of orientation, there's always going to be some level of deception if it's about Vishayananda, because nobody wants to come out and admit it. Isn't that interesting? I can't do this anymore, Broctus. Isn't that interesting that we all deep down inside know the duplicity of Vishayananda? We all know that sense pleasures won't satisfy us. That's why we're not comfortable walking up to somebody in the bar. I don't know about you, but at least the people I've met in my own life don't feel comfortable going up to someone and saying, you are so hot and all I want to do is bang and use you for your body and nothing else. I could not care less about what kind of personality you have. You know, you don't need to impress me with your intellect. I just want to have sex. So let's cut to the chase. 
you know, that would probably be like the subtext of, hey, so what do you think about today's political? You know, that's probably what is being said underneath all these, uh, this, you know, and, and, and Pauline knows very much about the spiritual people. Where say, but we're all one, man. You know, we should, we should mingle souls, man. Sh-. But really what they're saying is, all I want is sex and I don't care about who you are. Yeah, Chakra Chad, we call them. Not, not Chakra Chad, Chakra Chad. Chakra Chad, no, chakra. Tantra, Tantra Chad. So yeah, yeah, this this can happen. You can use spiritual language or pseudo-intellectual language, but what you really want is Vishayananda, and that's not going to be fulfilling. So when you yourself in your personal life reorient yourself away from Vishayananda and towards like intellectual, maybe artistic pleasures, naturally, if you if you sincerely want those things, sincerely are interested in art and intellectual conversation, then you will, like we said earlier, attract a partner who's interested in that too. But even that's not ultimately fulfilling. It's still a Vishayananda. So the best kind of partnership then is a partnership established in Bhajanananda, which can only happen when you yourself have acquired a taste for Bhajanananda. When you really, truly enjoy meditation, uh, spirituality, um, devotion, then you will find a partner. Naturally, one partner such as that will just come into your life and you together will reify a new game, which is spirituality is a fulfilling way to be in this world. And indeed, it's a better game than the one you were playing before. So that's how you improve your relationship on that level. Just you yourself become interested in Bhajanananda. Okay, now we go to the final part of this lecture. Brahmananda, the ultimate consummation of life, the ultimate joy. And when we talk about Brahmananda, um, we learn something very interesting about relationships. We learn the why of this whole conversation we've been having up till now. Notice we've only been speaking pragmatically now, right? I've only been appealing to your experience, you know? I've only been saying as much as search your feelings, Luke, you know it to be true. I haven't really offered any like philosophical justification for the stuff that we're saying here tonight. I'm just depending on your own discernment and experience. Now let's provide some philosophical infrastructure. Very briefly, in the final few moments of this lecture, let's just look at what it is about sense pleasure that makes it so unfulfilling. What it is about spiritual pleasure that makes it so fulfilling. And we'll understand this in light of our conversation about Brahmananda. So here, here it goes. You know, Vedanta in 15 minutes, let's try. Here it goes. This is the central claim. You are not a body. This body is not even yours. You are not a mind. This mind is not even yours. That's why the pleasure of the body does not fulfill you. If you were a body, then when the body was fulfilled, you would be fulfilled. Isn't that obvious? If you were a body, then when the body was in an air-conditioned room after a sumptuous meal, you wouldn't feel empty, but you do. Notice, even in an air-conditioned room in a first-world country with all of the creature comforts around you, you still feel restless still feel like something's missing, that life is not complete yet, isn't that? If you were a body, life would be, it would be so simple, you know, just meet your basic bodily desires, eat and have sex and sleep. And these are nice, but they don't do it. They don't ultimately do it, which means you must be something more than a body. So this is the first evidence then. If you were a body, the, the satisfaction of the body would be your satisfaction. Given that you are not satisfied, even when the body is satisfied, you therefore cannot be a body. Next, are you a mind? Well, if you were a mind, then when the mind was satisfied, you should be satisfied. But have you ever met a more restless thing than this mind? 
a thing more uncomfortable with satisfaction and contentment than the mind. You know, in psychology, they call it habituation. You think you need a million dollars. Once you get it, a million dollars becomes the new normal. Now you need $10 million. This is the ultimate fallacy of life, thinking that you will actually be happier when you get more stuff. Because what you're hoping is that this stuff will take you out of normal. What you forget is you're just moving into a new normal. Have you ever left normal? Not once. Your whole life is the savagery of normal. Don't think you're moving anywhere just because you made more money or you got a promotion or you got a new partner that's more like pretty or uh, rich. Or No, no, no. It's just going to be the new normal. You'll never be satisfied. Haven't you noticed? Most of us have noticed. Why? Because you're not a mind. Who do you think you are? This story that you tell yourself. Oh, I'm a niche. It's a story. Niche is nothing more than a collection of thoughts. It's like a bouquet of thoughts, if you will. Yes, carefully cultivated to present to you a certain idea. You know, there are some flowers I keep hidden behind, so you don't see those ones. Um, But notice, where did I get these flowers? My parents handed me a few, society handed me a few, you people are handing me a few. And then I collect all of them and I put them in a bouquet and I say, this is niche. And I believe there is such a thing in this world called a niche. Hmm? I'm buying into a story. Now, don't you think then, if I was niche, Nish, when Nish was happy, I'd be happy, but that's not the case. In fact, the more I try to make Nish happy, the more miserable I become. That seems to be the basic fact of my experience. Why? Because I'm not my story about myself either. I'm not the mind. I am not the body and I'm not the mind. That's why satisfying the body and satisfying the mind will never satisfy you because that's not what you are. As we've said in a previous lecture, this world with all of its physical and psychological rewards is dog food and you are not a dog. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the irony of it. And until you realize that, you're continuously going to be eating out of the doggy dinner bowl, wishing that you were a dog because dogs can enjoy that, but not you. Don't hate on the dog. Dogs are wonderful. You know, they're, they're loving life. Let the dog be. But you are not that. It's not food for you. And that's why it can never fill you, never truly fill you. So in Brahmananda then, this is the conversation. You start to realize that more and more. You start to move towards that which you truly are. At your essence nature, beyond all physicality and psychology, you are purusha, you are pure awareness, chid, you know, samvit, you are, whatever you want to call it. The Buddhists call it shunyat, or you could call it the clear light of the void, you know, the soul for Christians and other Abrahamic traditions. You can call it a chid, in our tradition, it's witness, a pure sakshi or pure awareness. Brahman, uh, and in my tradition, Shiva, Parama Shiva, pure transcendental and imminent awareness. That's what you truly are. Now, the reason spiritual practices can make you happier than like material joy is because that mirror is now reflecting the sun nicely. But actually, you were never the mirror. You were the sun. You know, everything you have ever enjoyed has always been a reflection of what you already are at your essence nature. So if you enjoy chocolate, it's because it's murkily reflecting back to you what you already are. You know, if you are enjoying meditation, it's because you're getting a slightly clearer reflection of what you already are. Don't you think the ultimate consummation of joy then is to become joy, to realize that the joy you are seeking all your life is not something that you can experience or have because it's something that you are. You are joy. You are bliss. You are not just the source of bliss. Your very name is bliss. Your very essence is bliss. So everything that you have enjoyed 
you enjoy it because it's reflecting back to you what you already are. It's like looking for glasses in the room while they were on your face the whole time. <laughs> That's the irony of all of this. You don't want money. You want yourself. You don't want romantic relationships. You want yourself. And that's the opening of the Birhad Aranyak Upanishad. You know, Yagna Valkya is teaching his wives. He's saying, uh, the wife asks, what is it to be happy? And, you know, Yagna Valkya is teaching. And wife wants to know about the self. And Yagna Valkya says, what the husband loves in the wife. It's not sex. It's the self. What the rich man loves in his money is not ambition or wealth. It's the self. And this self we're talking about is pure awareness. The soul. And that's what you are. So Brahmananda is the bliss of Samadhi, the bliss of total immersion into your essence nature. In our tradition, Shaivism, we call it Samavesha. Samavesha is to be immersed in pure awareness, unity consciousness, because that feeling of wholesomeness and wholeness is unrivaled by any of its reflections, you see? So philosophically speaking, the reason Brahmananda is the highest joy is because every other joy is just a reflection of this one joy. And this one joy is what you are. So then we can go back to the beginning of this lecture and perhaps philosophically qualify our central claim. There is only one force acting in the universe. It's not different in type or kind. It's different in degree. There is only one game in town, as Christopher Wallace says nicely. And we're all playing it just at different levels, you see. <laughs> so those who come to spirituality are playing it a little more skillfully. And as a result, they'll be rewarded with a little more joy. But eventually, they'll go even beyond those joys and become joy. And that's where we must stop our lecture because words cannot enter this place. Words can never describe the ineffable experience. Uh, even now, see, even that couldn't work because it's not an experience. When experience, experiencing, and experiencer all collapse into one, what words are you going to use for that? Except to say, we're all headed into it as Ram Dass would say, as moths into flame. That's our final destination. It's just some get there sooner than others. So spiritual life is just a matter of expediting a natural process that will fulfill itself anyway in time. You know, that's just the natural evolution of the soul. So Ma Sharada said it best. Um, everybody eats who comes to the temple. The temple here, of course, being embodied existence in this world. Everybody eats. Some will eat in the daytime, some will eat in the morning, some will eat in the afternoon, some will have to wait in the evening, and some will have to fast all day, <laughs> but they will be fed tomorrow. So if you continuously live for sense pleasure, don't worry, your suffering will teach you. Your suffering will be the best guru and it will bring you to Bhajanananda. And in Bhajanananda, that will teach you through joy. So there are two ways to be taught in life. You can be taught by the rod or you can be taught by the crook, you know? Osiris has two things. He's got a rod and a crook. It's kind of the basis of this Abrahamic Old Testament, New Testament dichotomy. There is a God that teaches you through rigor and severity, the God of the Old Testament, or the Muslims call it rigor, the rigor and severity of God. That's a kind of grace too. And for lesser students, you need that. <laughs> for a more primitive, more archaic society, you need the rod. Suffering is the only teacher. You know. Then, once you graduate that class, it becomes a little more fun. Remember the first few math classes were horrible. And Yam Socks, Liam will tell you, once you get to the higher levels of math, then it becomes art. So fun. So once you, you graduate, sense pleasure, and you will, all in your own time, you'll graduate, sense pleasure. Then you'll come to this class, which is learning through joy. Now joy, not suffering, will show you the way. You know, and then slowly you'll go past joy too to become joy. That 
is the spiritual path and it itself is a romance. It's a romance of the spirit. You are already married. You're just making your home way back home to your true spouse, you know, which is awareness, pure awareness. Okay. So then how do you apply this to relationships? Now, in Bhajanananda, when you and your partner are both experiencing it, naturally, a joy that makes you feel wholesome is a joy that will also be interpersonally wholesome. So when you enjoy Bhajanananda and your partner enjoys Bhajanananda to the same degree and the same level of intensity, and that's what you both like to do together, naturally, your relationship will reflect a kind of wholesomeness, beauty, and lightness. So notice, when you do spiritual practice, you'll feel light in your body and clear in your mind. Naturally, then, you will feel light, clear, and joyful in your relationship. You just watch. Soon, there'll be less fighting, less bickering. You know, someone will say something and it won't set you off the way it used to when you were in your rajasic, tamasic days. Why? Because you're not invested in your personal story. Do you notice in relationships, fights always start when someone uses the word always or never? You never wash the dishes. You never take the trash out. You always choose your work over me. Isn't always and never the ultimate story? Because it's not true. Everyone knows it's not true, but you're just saying it in the heat of the moment and you're believing in that story. So um, back in the day, if someone uses that kind of language with you, you never do this for me. You might've been triggered. And because your story about who you are is now threatened. <gasps> you're telling me I'm a bad person. I'm bad in this relationship. No, I'm a good person. I'm considerate. I resist your uh, retelling of my story. I and I alone will tell my story. Thank you very much. Nobody asked you. And then you're going to fight, you know, fight, fight, fight. But when you don't care about your personal story and they don't care about their personal story, you can just be together. No more fighting. No need to kind of renegotiate who you are, who they are. You've changed, babe. You're not the person I've married. Yeah, of course not. I was never that person. It was your mistake and my mistake to assume that such a person even existed. Who is that? <laughs> what it was a thought, a fleeting thought. And more importantly, it was a thought in your mind, not in mine. <laughs> you projected this idea of who you thought I was. No? I'm not anything. I'm not that. It's an illusion. No? Why is it an illusion? Because it changes. Anything that changes lacks intrinsic substance, reality. That's not the lecture to go into that. In depth, there is one called What is Truth? And in that lecture, we talk about why change equals untruth or asat or unreal. So notice because bodies are changing, because personalities are changing, because minds are changing, they're not real. So if you found your love upon a foundation that is not real, your love too will collapse. Even though that love feels real in the beginning, ultimately it won't have enduring quality because you're building it on sand. Castles made of sand slip into the sea eventually. Hendrix, huh? So how do you do this then? How do you move forward in your life? Do you just shirk off all relationships? Well, in some cases, yes. There are some people after seeing the illusory nature of body, uh, mind, and personality take up a monastic life. You know, they wear the ochre robe of the sannyasin and they renounce hearth and home and eventually work towards vows of poverty and chastity. They move through this world like the wind free and fragrant, untethered by anything. I once asked a young novice monk, was it hard to renounce the world? And his response was, brother, to tell you honestly, the only thing I've ever really renounced is suffering. But you must have a lot of discernment. Otherwise, if you're not sure that the world isn't for you, monk life will suck. I am not a monk. I am a householder. So I'm doing a different ideal. For me, it's the gradual weaning off of the world. So a householder must be a monk internally. 
The householder must handle money, but must never make the mistake that it is your money. The householder must um, do his or her or their duties to their partner in terms of sexual intimacy or romantic intimacy, but never must they be lustful or objectify. You know, and slowly you gradually together, you and your partner work it out. You go and enjoy the world together and Bhajan Ananda becomes your activity together. And slowly you both move to Brahmananda together. And that will be a really wonderful relationship. So if you study the lives of all the great householder um, kind of teachers that we've had in our culture, you'll see the same thing. So I said um, we'd close with Rama Sita, Krishna Radha, and Rama Krishna Sharada. So let's do that very briefly. Um, Rama Sita. Rama is an incarnation of God, an avatar in the Hindu tradition, right? So that means Rama is God himself. And God himself falls in love with Sita. Actually, incidentally, Rama almost renounced the world too. <laughs> There's a book called the Yoga Vashishta. It's a series of volumes. And in the Yoga Vashishta, the family astrologer convinces young Prince Rama not to leave his kingdom behind and become a monk. <laughs> so apparently it worked and Rama decides to become a king. And he falls in love with the beautiful Sita, who, as you know, is Lakshmi incarnate. And together, they live a wonderful householder's life doing their duties as prince and princess, you know, and when it's time for Rama to be king, they're about to do it, except, you know, you know the story, they get exiled and uh, Rama says, please Sita, don't come with me. It's the forest, forest life is not suited for you. And Sita says, wherever Rama goes, Sita follows. And then Rama responds, yes, even heaven would be devoid of meaning if my Sita wasn't there. And hell will be a paradise if I'm there with Sita. You know, they had eyes only for one another intensely monogamous. They were living for one another. They were each other's spiritual ideal. Sita looked upon Ram as God, because he was. And Ram looked upon Sita as a goddess, because she was. And they were two halves of one thing, Shiva Shakti, if you will. And they were perfect partners. Yeah, and, and look what happened. Yes, Sita got kidnapped. And then what happened? Ram walked all over India, amassed an army, you know, uh, built a whole bridge out of rocks to cross an ocean and waged war for years to get her back. Wow, find me a better romance than that. It's the basis of every Bollywood movie. Girl gets kidnapped by unsuitable suitor. The true suitor, who is an exile, uh, comes back and saves her after much arduous work. Sita, meanwhile, she's in the garden in Lanka. And of course, remember, Ravana, he's a gentleman. He refuses to sleep with Sita until she of her own accord decides to take him as a husband. So Ravana is coming every day trying to win Sita's heart, you know, and Sita doesn't care. Um, and she's just standing in the garden in Vrikshasana, tree pose, doing austerity and penance so she can win herself Rama again. So can you see that though? Wonderful. And, but you see what happens. He, they, they get reunited only to be parted again because of beauty. The state says, we can't accept Sita as a queen. She's been living in some other man's house for the last however many years. How do we know she's pure? And they force her to do some kind of ceremony in which she proves her purity. But even that is not enough for these people. And so eventually, for Rama to do his duty as a king, he must kind of send his wife away into the forest. It's a very tragic thing. Of course, she goes and lives with the great sage and raises Rama's two sons in secret. And Rama, meanwhile, does not take a new wife. Despite all the pressure from his kingdom, despite that his duty requires him to have a new wife, he refuses. His heart is for Sita and Sita alone. You know, that kind of intense non-dual love. And when it was time to do an important ceremony and a wife had to be present for that Vedic rite, instead of getting a new wife, he installed a gold Sita there next to him because that was his love to the end of his life. 
And lo and behold, Sita eventually comes back um, and only for him to lose her again. It's a tragic story. It's a story of true love. Uh, it's because they saw each other. One saw the other as a god and the other saw the other as a goddess. That was true love. It was not a selfish love. Now, Krishna and Radha, this love is a little more risque, a little more exciting because Sita and Ram, that's the love of a chaste uh, wife for her husband and the love of a dutiful husband for his wife. But in Krishna and Radha's case, oh, this is a romantic tryst. This is a meet me at midnight uh, by the tamarind grove, by the light of the moon, babe, kind of love. You know, Radha is a cowherd girl. She's a gopi. Krishna is the dashing, enchanting flute player that wanders the woodland sylvan realm of Brindavan. And these gopis, quite a few of them, all fall in love with Krishna in a kind of erotic way, you know. But Krishna is God. So this is pure bhajanananda. It's actually eroticism and sexuality transmuted and channelized into spirituality. So Radha and Krishna is that kind of daring, fierce love, the hero's love that you might find in Rumi, you know? Um, so that's Radha Krishna. Then Ramakrishna and Ma Sharada. So you should know that the culmination of Ramakrishna's sadhana, meaning his spiritual practice, was to install his wife, Sarada Devi, on the altar and worship her as Kali herself. You tell me anything more romantic than that. And this isn't even in like, oh, you are Kali, babe. No, actually, it's, not, it's beyond just sentiment. He put her on the altar and he went into Samadhi, of course, because to him, she is Kali. And she also went into Samadhi. Otherwise, she would never have agreed to do something like that. You know, Sharada, you know, very devout Hindu woman from a small village. She would never dream of stepping onto the altar and like being worshipped and deified like that. But because she too was in this semi-conscious trance state, she too kind of you know, went with the ceremony. And on one particular new moon night during the 11 p.m., 12 p.m. hour of Kali, Ramakrishna worshipped Ma Sharada as Kali. Ma Sharada herself embodied, exemplified Kali. And at the end of that ceremony, Ramakrishna put his rosary, his japa mala at her feet, surrendering the fruits of all of his karma, worldly and spiritual, at the feet of Holy Mother. And he never did any formal spiritual practices ever again. That was the culmination of his sadhana, to worship his wife, as divinity. That's the kind of love we should all aspire to. And it's going to be easy to do once you have bhajanananda, because the more you practice spirituality, the more godlike you become, the more goddess-like your partner becomes and vice versa, because they become less and less selfish. You become less and less selfish, and it becomes easier and easier for you to see each other as God to God, goddess to goddess, goddess to God. And then your very relationship becomes a sadhana, because every time you see them, you'll feel like praying to them. Honestly, you look at them and you say, oh, my goddess is here. The goddess is here. And so let's close here, friends. The ideal for a householder then is to worship one's partner like the goddess and God and divinity that they are. You know, the goal of spiritual life is to make the divine mundane and to make the mundane divine. Bring God into the world and elevate the world up into God. You see. Let all the rajas and sattva, sorry, let all the rajas and tamas be dissolved into the nectarian ocean of love that is your spiritual practice. Let sattva assert itself in your body, mind, and speech. May you be purified now and always by the wonderful um, 
water and cleansing ray of spiritual life. May you have a genuine taste for spiritual life. And may all your relationships, romantic or otherwise, reflect that true spirituality. And may you live in harmony, peace, joy, and beauty forevermore. Be bathed in purity. Be immersed in bliss, the bliss of awareness, the clear light of the void. So happy Valentine's Day, one and all. Um, let's close with another invocation to Lakshmi, um, who is the goddess of beauty and whose day I like to think it is. Um, we'll do an invocation to Lakshmi and we'll close. Shanti Shanti Hari Yung Tatsat Sri Ram Krishna Panamastu